passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Well, everybody, another quarter is in the books for WWE, and we have lots to discuss coming out of a very eventful earnings call that followed all of the reports that were issued by the company on Thursday late afternoon. And that means that we put out the WrestleNomics signal out into the skies from Toronto, Ontario, Canada, and they have reached Brandon Thurston, who returns to post-wrestling. Brandon, always a pleasure to have you on the show. I'm here. There's there's snow falling this morning. As I, as I look out the window here at WrestleNomics headquarters, I don't see any this morning, but did you have snow this morning in Toronto? We have, we have not hit snow, although we are right at uh, zero celsius so we are we are right on the brink but look at that you guys getting snow before us here in canada yeah just tiny flakes as i was walking the dog this morning but uh yeah it was uh i had the day off it, it's uh I, th- I think you were saying earlier as i was listening to post wrestling earlier this week these are bigger than the pay-per-views aren't they they're just they're uh there's there's better stories and they're just more fun these are the these are the real quarterly specials and what we always say as the default in pro wrestling, and I know you've been a big proponent of it, is the creation and elevation of new stars. And we had two of them on the earnings call. This was the big debut after after the press release in lieu of uh, vignettes building up to Christina Salen and Nick Khan having their first real uh, public introduction to the WWE stock analysts on this call. And we can actually start there. I mean, this was, you know, a a serious focus of the call was kind of presenting this new executive management team. And I cannot recall too many times that Vince McMahon was near emotional at the beginning of this (laughs) call by describing like the camaraderie and joy that these people have brought to this executive branch. Like I envisioned like George Barrios like sobbing somewhere as he heard this, but this was like very much like the new regime uh, that was on display on this earnings call. Yeah, I, I hope there's a Netflix uh, scripted series someday that just uh, a docu series that reenacts with, uh, today's or yesterday's call. And you know, there's a scene of George Barrios sitting alone somewhere in Connecticut listening to the call. But yeah, I think uh, so. Nick Khan is the new president and chief revenue officer for WWE. Uh, I think Vince is just in love with them. He's oh. He's, he's got such a deep voice. And he knows what he's talking about. He's a man. He's an alpha. But he was very impressive on this call. And I think it was a, a clear contrast from, I mean, we only listened to him talk for less than an hour. But it, it was very different feel from the feel that I got when I listened to all those calls with George Barrows and, and sometimes Michelle Wilson would talk. Um, Nick Khan feels like somebody who has a lot more direct experience dealing with the media rights negotiations that are that have become so important to WWE's financial picture and uh, are only going to be more important for the foreseeable future. Um, as you mentioned, you know, Christina Salen is the new chief financial officer. And I think I had maybe expected her presence on the call to be a bigger deal. I think I was just overestimating, you know, look at how big a deal George Berrios was in the executive picture of WWE, and he was basically in the CFO role, and now Salen is replacing him, but she appears to have a more of a minor role, and, and after all, she didn't get the president title, mm-hmm. Nikon has got the president title, and uh, and speaking of elevating stars, I think uh, Stephanie McMahon was elevated to an extent that she's never been at on one of these earnings calls. She was, you know, I was surprised when... Senior Vice President Michael White, he always does the introduction and reads the forward-looking statements and tells you who's about to speak on the call. And it's always going to be, you know, Vince McMahon and George or Vince McMahon and George and Michelle. And uh, he introduced Vince, Nick Khan, Christina Salen, and Stephanie McMahon. Stephanie uh, went on, on, you know, on her spiel as, as chief brand officer. But I think it, uh, 
you know, now with the new management team, it sounds like, at least from the, the public view, that maybe Stephanie's going to have an even greater role here as she becomes, you know, the next sort of the, the next McMahon in line, I guess. But yeah, overall, I think Nick Khan's very impressive, and I think uh, he's got a. It sounds like he's got a good grip on the media business, on the, the sports media business. And as I said, it's going to be super important to WWE going forward as they try to deal new TV deals. And as we'll probably get into as uh, he tries to deal some of the, the WWE Network content, probably the pay-per-views, off of the network and onto a major streaming player, which is something that's been talked about for basically the, the entirety of 2020 to this point. I guess the, the headline uh, coming out of the uh, earnings report is that they posted revenue of uh, over $221 million dollars Net income topping $48 million, which a new record replacing the previous quarter. Uh, so, I mean, this has been an enormous year for the company. And I think that's where, um, you know, re- revenue, I think people kind of saw like, you know, they knew that the escalators were in place for these television contracts. Expenses are uh, less at this point, given the the structure of their tapings and such. But uh, in terms of the profit for, for the quarter, what was your takeaway at you know, a really impressive figure coming out of uh, Thursday. Yeah, I was it was way over my expectations and it was even way over the expectations of even the highest analyst estimate. So I have an E-Trade account and I can go in and like look up quotes for WE and, and I can get some analyst reports, not real analyst reports, but sort of a, a condensed aggregated version of like, here's what the average analyst is estimating. Here's what the high analyst estimate is. Here's what the low is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I was on par with the lowest analyst estimate. The 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 high analyst estimate was uh, something like 56 cents EPS. And, and they, I think they re- ended up reporting about 58. So any, anyway, the even the most optimistic stock analyst who looked at WB and made, tried to make an estimate of what they were going to report, uh, they reported even above that. So, uh, the net income, as you mentioned, is now at $118 million for uh, the first nine months of 2020. And when we talk about profit, there's a number of different metrics that W reports for profit. They like to talk about adjusted OEDA, which is a weird sort of made up uh, profit metric. But net income, I think you sort of think about it like your your net take home pay, you know, after the taxes and things like that, things of that nature are taken out. They're already at 118 million dollars that's more than they have ever made even when you adjusted for inflation back in the attitude era in the attitude era in, in terms of like 2020 us dollars they made you know 84 86 million dollars in in those peak years they're now at 118 million dollars that's break that's breaking the record of 2018 with only nine months now it sounds like q4 is going to be less profitable um my read on, on the things that Salen said, she said there's going to be something like 40 to $46 million of incremental added expenses related to uh, employees coming off of furlough and related to the Thunderdome and the Capital Center. And I'm, I'm really confused about the, the operating expenses. I expected – so the reason why I, I estimated so low is because I was figuring that the Thunderdome looks expensive and I could see them really investing a lot of money to try to get, get their ratings back on track. Mm-hmm. And, and I've, I've looked at the, the 10Q, which is the big quarterly report uh, in the SEC filings. And I can't – like the operating expenses are lower in Q3 than they were in Q2. And in Q2, they were in the entirety of the quarter. All the Raw and SmackDown tapings were at the Performance Center. In Q3, about 45%, a little bit less than half of the Raw and SmackDown tapings were at Amway Center in the Thunderdome. And yet operating expenses are lower in Q3 than Q2. So I have no idea how to make sense of that. But anyway – that resulted in a more profitable Q3 than a Q than the Q2 that they had. Um, but yeah, th- so I think in Q4 they're going to be quite a bit less profitable. But it sounds like it's still going to be a positive quarter. So they're probably only going to add a little bit to the profits that they have. It just it, it really speaks to how how much the wrestling business, as far as a business model, has changed. Uh, we think back to you know when we we you know talk about the the hall of fame votes and what we're going to do and who, who drove ticket sales and things like that. Um, you know, the, the wrestling business decades ago used to be a business that you, you went on TV and you cut promos and shot angles so that people would buy tickets. And that's where you got the majority of your revenue from was from, from tickets. Maybe there was some merch, um, but you certainly weren't getting a lot of money from being on TV. Um, when, when pay-per-view arrived, then like, you know, media 
as, as we talk about it today, media started to get monetized more. Pay-per-view became a big business from the late 80s onward. Um, but it's really exploded now to where the, the flagship program, the thing that used to promote the ticket sales or the pay-per-view buys, that has become by far the biggest piece of revenue. So even in a year where the pandemic has wiped out all ticket sales for WWE, has wiped out whatever venue merch uh, they were making there, uh, this company is having its most profitable year ever at a time when after March 13th, there hasn't been a single ticket sold. And that just brings about like so many questions to like the future of how you operate what's been just, you know, traditional aspects of the business. And I think live events is certainly one of those that, I mean, prior to the pandemic was one we were discussing about the longevity of of this particular pillar of the company. And you look at this and you can go into this about uh, like merchandise sales during this pandemic. I don't know if anyone could have predicted that, but it certainly brings about like at the very least, there is no race to go back to your traditional house shows, even when you have the go ahead to be able to travel again. No, I think it's a, it's a, it's a subject to, that there could be a lot of debate about. There's arguably there's a lot of hidden value in having people wrestle a lot, even if it's, you know, superficially a, a loss. Um, I think we've, we've, as I, you know, try to dig in deep and, and learn about what the expenses are, the revenues of, of, of wrestling and of WWE in this case are relatively easy to figure out. What's harder to figure out are the expenses. And, and what I'm learning is that to run a, a, a TV show like a WWE TV show with the production quality that they have is extremely expensive. So when we've talked about, you know, in prior years, how say, say take last year, last year, their live events division um, would have been a, a money loser if not for WrestleMania, right? WrestleMania is this gigantic event with high ticket prices and a huge audience, live audience. And that makes a lot of money, right? They, they draw about $15 million at the live gate for WrestleMania. But in quarters outside of WrestleMania, each quarter, the live event division uh, lost money. And I don't know if that's due to house shows or it's depending on how they're doing the accounting. If, if that's just due to the, the massive expense associated with uh, doing the sort of live production, the TV production that they do for Raw and SmackDown and for and for pay-per-views. But uh, I forget what your original question was, but but that, it's um it's extremely expensive to do these TV shows. And there's hidden value right in, in house shows in terms of having wrestlers. I think it's something that AEW kind of faces is that they've they're only running these you know, sort of weekly TV tapings and how and they, they how do you develop talent, especially if you don't have a developmental system, but how do you develop talents without giving them a lot of opportunities to get the reps in? Um, but and I, I don't think um, it's a question that people often ask me when we talk about this, are house shows just going to go away in the future. Well, but they sell all this merchandise revenue. Um, they, they do sell merchandise revenue, but I don't think I've, I've done the math. Uh, at times, and it doesn't seem to be like, well, they lose money on house shows, but it really gets made up made up by all the merch money that they sell. I, I'm not so impressed with the the venue merch revenue that I think it's it's worth it. But on the other hand, if you're running a house show, what I was saying earlier about how expensive it is to run a RAW or a pay per view with the gigantic uh, production values, if you've been to a house show, you know the production values on house shows are much lower. They just sort of have like this WWE logo set, and that's where the, where the wrestlers walk out from. They're not doing the massive uh, LED screens and the giant Titantron or whatever, right? So, of course, those production values on house shows are much lower. How much lower, though, I don't know. So, I, ultimately, my point is I don't know if taking away house shows would – I don't know to what degree that that would actually make WWE more profitable. Yeah. And I mean, you've, you've talked about it before, like the, the hidden value of number one, it's getting experience for your talent. It's also going to markets that you're not going to bring a massive television taping to. Yeah. Uh, there's certainly, I think definitely value to it. I guess it, you just look at where is this company viewing it, itself post pandemic of the idea of developing its talent in overseas markets where 
they're hoping to have like these these satellite groups that that's your development and then it's more so we're running a a television production that is their core business as opposed to a live touring business of uh of the way the business was run previously i guess that's where you look at some of these numbers and they just look at hey is the the wear and tear we're saving on our talent versus you know younger talent that should be out there like where what are the benefits? What are the restrictions that we have to having our talent going to four cities in four nights as opposed to they just focus on our two big television shows for Raw and SmackDown? Yeah, it, it seems like a bit much. Like I, we, I would have to know like the uh, more detail than we ever get about what's what, what are house shows costing on average, what are TVs costing on average to really figure out how – how much of a savings it would be, they know. Um, but I think what we, maybe what we'll get in the future, I could see maybe North American house shows being diminished or almost completely going away, but probably the international tours staying uh, roughly what they are. Or maybe we would even get more of uh, what was talked about on this call of sort of these localized, specialized shows. They want to do uh, a a show in India mm-hmm. in partnership with their, their TV partner in India, Sony. Uh, and it sounds like they want to include a lot of Indian talent, and I was sort of asking around, what, how many Indian wrestlers do they even have under contract right now? And it's like maybe, maybe like six or seven. I think they've got um, what Jinder Mahal, the um, God, what's the tag team? The Singh brothers, Singh brothers, uh, Kavita Devi, and there's I mean, they, uh, they do have Sanjay Dutt under contract, just not as a performer, right? And who's Malcolm with now? Um, oh, right, that was with um, uh. Yeah, the the tag team, mm-hmm. the tag team, That's the tag team it. that has disappeared from a uh, from television. Yeah, right, right. So yeah, I don't know. India is a big market for them. It is their number two TV market now. I believe it's you know um, decisively more valuable as a TV contract than whatever's going on in the UK. Um, and there's there's a ton of people in, in India. I mean, they tried a few years ago, as we remember, with Jinder Mahal and uh, making him champion just before a couple of. Uh, India shows live events that they had, which they had to cancel one. So I don't know. Um, it's it's something worth worth trying, but I think what you need to have a to get hot in the India market is to have you know a big star who is a big star who maybe is, is of Indian descent, but is you know not just a big star to one localized market, but is a big star I don't know, in general. And uh, you know the the people who it's like when you know if you um you know when when, when um. Trish Stratus goes to Toronto, for example. It's it's a big deal because she's a big star in general, and she happens to be from Toronto, um, rather than just being sort of a special localized star for one market. But we'll see. Uh, the the tag team that I don't want to slight in this sure that people are screaming uh, that mm-hmm. I, I'm sure are missing. This was uh the team that featured the uh, participant who uh was on Instagram and leaked out the uh, the double championship win by Keith Lee back in the summer. I see. That that is my strongest memory of the the tag team's <laughs> run. Um, you know, so so much to discuss here. A lot of it was, and and I think that uh, Nick Khan certainly had uh, some s- strong responses. Was that during the Q and A? I mean, much like last quarter, a lot of the questions pertain to television viewership, and you know, we have seen numbers stabilize with the advent of the Thunderdome, but more so than that, it was somewhat. You know, looking at, hey, television ratings are one measure, as Vince McMahon stated, and they stated that this is a – this world is going in the streaming direction. We're very much ready for that and reintroducing the the talks that they had teased earlier this year about licensing content from the WWE Network. How did you think they handled the uh, questions about television ratings and did you think that they were satisfying answers for analysts that are, you know, looking at th- those drops and getting some context to them. Yeah. Well, well going in, I, I figured this is going to be an easier call with, with respect to the ratings discussion than last time. Uh, last time was late July and ratings were really going down for Raw and SmackDown. And there were some, some tough questions that I think uh, where people were raising issues about, you know, why is, uh, why are Raw and SmackDown down? But NXT and AEW are doing better. And I think that that phenomenon that we saw over the summer was was reflective of, of a real uh, trend in, in, in fan behavior. Um, 
since then, the Thunderdome has been around, and that's helped stabilize ratings. Roman Reigns, who's a, I guess the biggest star in, in WWE at this point. Yep. Um, John, John Cena's gone. Uh, Roman Reigns came back. That's helped, um, at least in SmackDown's case. But, but Raw has been doing well also, despite Monday Night Football coming back. And, and as I said, unprecedented sports competition uh, being on TV. Um, Vince McMahon said something to the effect of, you know, we, we've, you know, TV ratings are what they are, but uh, it is what it is. But that's just one measure. You can't just hang your hat on TV ratings when, you know, look at other things like, you know, their, their online consumption. And I think he really, really sort of shows how he's kind of out of his, uh, his elements. And he starts to talk about social media and, and things of that nature. Um, but he said something to the effect of, you know, we've got more fans than ever now, actually, even though ratings are down. And I think that's that's just BS. I think you look at the, at, at the annual trends of things like uh, ticket sales and merchandise revenue and the, the behavior that we saw with uh, network subscribers over 2019, where in every quarter it was down from the, the comparison of the prior year. It is back up now. And they did do well in, in network subscribers in Q3 better than I thought they would. Um, but and I, I look at things like Google web search and just look at that on how in a, a worldwide basis in a year and a, a U.S. basis, uh, that's just going down lower and lower. Uh, I, I was tweeting, you know, I think earlier this week, uh, a comparison of like, look at look at the uh, the Google web search trends for WB and compare that to the NFL, the NHL, the N- NBA, boxing, all these other sports where it, where it's either pretty stable or flat or it's growing. And in the case of WWE, over the course of, say, since 2016, it's it's just a down-to-the-right trend. Um, so I think all those things combined, even though, yeah, absolutely, uh, as, and, and Nick Khan sort of laid it out in a, in a fairly smart way, yes. People are consuming video in a different way. People are trending away from consuming video on linear TV, on their pay TV cable, uh, or over-the-air you know, TV systems, and they're consuming it more uh, through their whatever other screens they've got, their phone, their tablet, the computer. Um, and I think that's that that tells us that the value of live content is not going to go away. Um, and I, th- I think the, the, the future value of WWE's uh, live programming like Raw and SmackDown and, and the pay-per-views is going to remain stable, uh, even though people are gravitating away from con- you know, consuming it uh, in, in on live TV and we see that the ratings going down, but I think you can make the comparisons about what the look at the trends of NXT throughout this year and look at the trends of AEW dynamite throughout this year and compare that to, to Raw and SmackDown, even though Raw and SmackDown absolutely are uh, viewed about twice as much as those two programs. Um, they have not suffered uh, NXT and AEW have not suffered in the way that Raw and SmackDown have, even though Raw and SmackDown have stabilized they have not recovered yet to the point where they're they're having a better growth story or as good of a growth story or you know, holding up story as NXT and AEW have. I, I, I don't think it's uh, legitimately deniable that the po- popularity of WWE, the popularity of the main roster brands has diminished over the last few years, including this year. When we look back at those you know, huge deals signed in, in 2018. It seemed that, you know, timing was really with WWE that just, they had all their ducks in a row. You had, you know, just the, uh, the, the addition of a, of a Ronda Rousey that I, I think played a factor in there, at least in terms of, you know, getting the ball rolling and such. Uh, as you look at the timing several years down the road, when these deals are up in 2024 and you're looking at the landscape of, streaming platforms and increasing, you know, leverage when it comes to alternative options beyond linear television. What's like your forecast about like WWE's timing that it seems that, you know, several years from now, we could see, you know, a major, you know, sports franchise that latches on to a Netflix or an Amazon or as uh, the fangs, as was pointed out, our new acronym to add to the bingo card. The fangs, which stands for, let's see. Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google. Yes. Those are the, the five big tech companies. Um, I guess we're, we're, you're asking about. I guess right as now. you just looked, like if, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, several years from now, it just, like, there's no way to really, uh, you know, answer concretely, but like timing wise, it just seems like, you know, 
I'd be pretty confident if I'm WWE of like where the like a potential bidding war and driving up your your price could be three years from now, as opposed to if your rights were up this this moment. Yeah, it's it's uh, something that was speculated. I think especially for the the India uh, deal that came that came up um, that was just finally sort of completed in, in Q2 of this year. There was some discussion from you know, some firms like like Lightshed. Uh, that, you know, maybe because uh, look, Facebook made a bid on cricket in India. Maybe that's a sign of what, what's happening in India or a sign of what's uh, things that are to come in the U.S. market. Um, Facebook never maybe Facebook showed some interest in, in WWE. Maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. Anyway, WWE didn't get didn't get a massive increase in India. They got a one point eight X increase in India. Compare that to the three point six X increase that they got in the U.S. because they had Nick Khan come in and help them split off. Uh, raw and SmackDown rights, taking Raw, uh, giving Raw to uh, dealing Raw to the USA Network, and then dealing away SmackDown off of the USA Network and onto Fox, and that resulted in a big increase because they were able to deal with two partners rather than just selling it all in bulk, I guess, to one. Um, the, I guess the, the thought is like, you know, the, these negotiations are going to come up in they're probably going to be getting dealt in early 2023. There may be talks before that. The sort of the, the schedule that we've learned over previous patterns here, previous trade, you know, uh, negotiation cycles is that the timing should end up where a deal gets done about the middle of 2023. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the big, that's, that's, that's where the big WrestleNomics, WrestleMania is going to happen. Um, because, because AEW will be involved probably around that time too. So AEW's deal with Warner Media, uh, expires at the end of 2023. But Warner Media could re- has an option to renew them and extend them for an, an additional year. Um, if things go the way that they are currently going, it seems like they have a, a good relationship and that they would renew that deal or take pick up the option for an additional year rather than having to renegotiate or, or, or let them go somewhere else. I don't think they would want to do that if things are the way that they are now. Um, so that would, could end up with AW Dynamite being dealt at the same time that Raw and SmackDown are being dealt. And um, depending on what the viewership is like at that time, it's early 2023, that could be, I think that that could be not good for WWE if, say, uh, P18 to 49 or even P18 to 34 for AEW Dynamite is very comparable to Raw and SmackDown. I guess the, the argument that I can make if I was negotiating a deal for Raw and SmackDown, if, if AEW is very comparable to Raw and SmackDown, I could say, well, you're not the only wrestling product out here that's doing numbers like you are there's another product out here so it's not this unique special value that i can't get anywhere else if, if AEW does exist um i think AEW is due for a, a, a an increase of multiples if you know things continue to play out uh, the way that they are in terms of the viewership trends but i but i think even in that environment where say you got AEW dynamic doing a very comparable young viewership demographic re- relative to ron smackdown um i still think the live uh, the live content value for Raw and SmackDown uh, is still stays pretty strong, especially if they're they're still as highly ranked as they are. I've been trying to digest a lot of you know sort of wider scope information uh, about where does Raw and SmackDown lie compared to all the other TV you know in in, in the U.S. TV ecosystem. Uh, we all we all know yes, TV is down overall, and, and sure it is. But where what where really is Raw and SmackDown? And I. I did a lot of copying and pasting from showbuzzdaily.com, and I looked at all the, the TV data going back to the beginning of the year. And even though, as we know, in the history of these programs, the history of Raw is a is a down and to the right line. The history of SmackDown is a little more complicated because they've been all over these these different networks that have improved their viewership. But if you sort of took that out, yeah, SmackDown would probably be down to the right too. But uh, Raw is still we consider that Raw is a year round program, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe it takes one week off a year for the holidays, but it, otherwise it is a 52 weeks a year program. And so the, the things that beat raw beat raw are, are just other sports, just other major sports like college football and pro football and the NBA. There really isn't another program on really any night of the week that you could say that it does the sort of key demo viewership that raw does or that SmackDown does and does it year round. And, and for these networks that pay, as we know, huge contracts, you know, $265 million a year on average for Raw, $205 million a year on average for SmackDown. 
I think that comes out to something like $5 million per episode, roughly. Yeah. Um, so that's a ton of money, but that's still cheaper than it would cost networks to replace Raw and SmackDown. And they might not get the same viewership. And they probably wouldn't. I mean, if, if you're doing a scripted series, you're not going to get that 52 weeks a year with new first run content. Um, so while, while Raw is three hours a week and it's a slog to watch and, it, and I think it's detrimental to their popularity. It's still filling three hours. That that's like three TV series, first run year round, you know, for fifty two weeks a year for the USA Network. Um, but anyway, so I think that the the value of of Raw and SmackDown, even though the creative is really bad sometimes, and even though the popularity is diminishing, I don't see the popularity of WWE getting so diminished that uh, the these TV shows start falling out of like. The, the top they're they're in the top five you know raw is in the top five uh on average uh, i don't see it dropping well below that i don't see it dropping out of like the top seven or the top eight or certainly the top 10 so as long as it stays in that in that sort of top 10 top five territory um on its night i think these these cable networks really need this uh this the this content that will drive the the cable subscribers to continue to demand that my god i've got to have the usa network um the 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 tv network economy has really changed over the last few decades i think that the cable systems the cable networks used to be more of an advertising platform so think about like avod think about like youtube you know nobody's paying a subscription well, if, if you're going to youtube.com you're not doing youtube tv you're just you're just watching ads and you're watching video I think that's more along the lines of what the USA Network, for example, or TNT used to be. But now USA Network and TNT and all these other cable networks, including Fox, even though you can get it over the air, they're charging the cable systems like uh, here it's Spectrum or Comcast itself as a cable system or DirecTV or um, Dish Network. They're, the USA Network and TNT and ESPN are charging those cable and satellite systems, transmission fees, uh, more than ever to, to carry those networks to, to the point where it's now it's like 80% transmission fees and only 20% advertising revenue. So as much as we talk about how important the key demo is, which it is, and it tells us a lot about what the future of uh, TV viewership is going to be like and, and a lot about what the, the ad rates might be, um, you know, these... Uh, these TV, TV networks are kind of subscription services, even though you just you, you have to buy them in a bundle still. So so anyway, there's a lot of money to be had for these this live content that that keeps the networks as strong as they are and as sort of like must have as they are. Um, so I think live content is going to continue to be a strong value for WWE in the future, whether or not I think it's fine, finally get into your to your question here, whether or not the fangs, the big tech companies are going to get involved in live streaming. Um, maybe by 2023, I don't know, maybe, um, I sort of think about like what, what are the companies that might do it? Um, is Netflix, I don't see Netflix doing anything live, right? I think Amazon is doing something with the NFL. I think there's something to the idea of like, well, maybe we start to deal, um, live linear TV rights over here. And we deal digital live rights over here. Mm-hmm. I think uh, this is something I should probably read up more about. But, but Twitter has some sort of rights to the NFL, I think. And Amazon has some sort of rights to the NFL. So I think that's sort of maybe, – maybe that's just a separate media deal that gets made. You know, They have exclusive rights to this pipeline and they have exclusive li- rights to the, to the traditional TV pipeline. And that's how you even monetize even more. I mean who knows? Um, there's There's – there's a, a so what 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 others are there? There's, there's Facebook. We saw um, WWE sort of experiments with Facebook with the mixed match challenge that that lasted two seasons. That didn't seem to go that well. Um, I don't know that Facebook is going to make a huge play for uh, for sports, but but who knows? I mean, Nick Khan made the point that he thinks that judging by the hiring that these big tech companies are making, that that indicates to him that they they want to get into the to the uh the competition for live content so maybe that will happen um got apple there's apple tv are they going to do something live i'm not aware of anything that they're doing live um i think i think the way, way that netflix is 
have given this some thought. I think the way Netflix is now in something like 60 or 70 million homes in the U.S., and that's almost as many homes as have cable. It's about 80 million homes, maybe less than that by now, that have cable. So how many, maybe maybe the, the value for Netflix, if they were to actually do live TV, is to have some sort of higher premium tier that you can only get the live sports content on. But, uh, you know, see, the idea is like, well, if, if we pay, you know, a billion dollars for a, a live uh, sports property, how many more subscribers is that going to get us? Unless we put it on a higher tier where people are paying a premium for it when they're already in, you know, almost, you know, all the households maybe that they're going to be in. Maybe they're almost saturated at this point. Um, yeah. So there's Netflix and Google. Does Google have Google has YouTube TV, I guess. I don't know. I guess I guess YouTube could do something. But uh, yeah, three years is a long time away and we'll see what happens. But I think it's sort of a second. It's, it's, it's concerned more for these media distribution companies whether it's NBC Universal or Fox or ESPN or Warner Media or or the Fangs, that's a concern that they'll figure out and they'll sort out. And the consumers will have to deal with whatever they sort out for them. Um, but the content creators like WB or AEW are, I think that's less of a, they have fewer decisions to make, right? They just have to make the deals. And I think they're ultimately going to be the beneficiary of, you know, uh, TV rights fees that continue to increase in value. Uh, you spoke about the the WWE Network uh, subs for the end of the quarter. They were at one million five hundred forty nine thousand paid subs uh, worldwide. Average paid of just over one point six million. Of course, this is the uh, second quarter where we've gotten to see the what whatever impact you attribute to the free tier be in, being introduced, and I guess the. Main item coming out of that sector is the fact that they are resuming talks for licensing content out, but holding short of stating that the network itself would be uh, for sale. But they seem to be opening their doors to license content out again. And this was a deal that, I mean, you can recap from earlier this year, Brandon, where it seemed like they were right near the finish line. Like Vince McMahon was talking about this as though it was a done deal just before the pandemic hit, but it seems that this will now be uh, revisited. And I think probably a very likelihood that given, you know, what we have seen through other streaming platforms and like, there will be a lot of interest in WWE content. Yeah. The the major uh, suitors appear to be, in my estimation is ESPN plus and Peacock. Um, We saw in, in January, you know, Vince McMahon fired George Barris and Michelle Wilson. I, I think that was largely around a difference in strategy. They, I think Vince decided, you know, we've, we've done this W Network thing for, I guess, five years now, six, six years, yeah, about six years. And I don't think it played out as well as he would have liked. I think they saw they were they were openly projecting at one point three to four million subscribers. They got half of that. Um, I think George Barris may have. Uh, sort of overprojected a, a big tech philosophy onto WWE, sort of overemphasizing the value of the data. Although Nick Khan did, you know, sort of reassert that they think data is valuable. I think the the value of data of wrestling fans is not as valuable as um, they would like it to be or the, the value of data for people who use Facebook or Google. But um, so Barrios and Wilson were fired in January and, and Vince decided he wanted to take the, the basically the pay-per-views or the content associated with the W network in a different direction. He wanted to sell it to major streaming players like ESPN plus or Peacock, maybe even Amazon prime, who knows? And, uh, it sounded like in Q1 that he was, you know, this was in February where they had actually their Q4 year end conference call for, for 2019. And, uh, he's talking like, maybe we're going to get a deal done before the end of Q1 before March 31st. And obviously the, the pandemic started to take effect in the middle of March and that never materialized. Um, so one of the big reasons why they've hired Nick Khan is because Nick Khan would be somebody who would be well uh, prepared to to make deals like that. Um, so I think what, what we did get clarity on in this call was that they are not looking to sell the network itself, which is kind of what I saw as the, the smart thing to do. I think there's still a UFC fight pass type yeah. model for WWE to do. Where I think there are hundreds of thousands of subscribers who will continue to hold on to their subscription, even if there's no pay-per-view access on it. 
I think there are hundreds of thousands of people who, who just want that library. And and maybe even they leave they leave the takeovers on there and that's the you know, the takeovers become the leading content on the network. Um so I think uh that that's something that they may get done probably not before the end of the year. You know, they didn't want to put a timeline on it. And uh you know, I think Nick Khan said something to the effect of, you know, um you know, we don't want to put a timeline on it right now, but we're in constant contact with with all these people. So I, I don't know. Um I think the uh, the pay-per-views are worth somewhere around a hundred million dollars on an average annual basis, but uh, whether they uh, whether the streaming players are ready to figure out how the best I that, that's sort of the big big question I think for the streaming player. If I, if I have a streaming service like ESPN Plus or Peacock, a a wrestling pay-per-view is a really unusual piece of content. You know, it's not like The Office where you can, yeah people are going to binge it. Um, it's first of all, it's a live piece of content, but it's, and it's a really, it's, it's a piece of content that's been monetized in all these different ways over the last couple of decades here where it's, it's, it used to be something that people paid $50, $60 for. Now it's something that people pay for as for $10 a month as part of a bundle. So the appropriate way to, to charge for it isn't altogether clear, whether it should be on, on us on the standard tier, or whether it should be a part of some premium tier is not clear whether it should be monetized in the way that just go back to the way that, you know, the UFC is doing it where, you know, you ha- you have to have ESPN plus and you have to then also pay $60 for, for the, the program or whatever it is. Um, but WWE has kind of broken the system by charging $10 a month for, on a monthly fee for that and their entire library and some other stuff. So, yeah, I think that's the, if there's hesitation from the streaming ecosystem i think that's maybe what it's about is that they they may be not sure how to how to uh how to offer it to consumers but i do think one of the things um that w has to offer in addition to yes we're going to give you the pay-per-views is that uh, not only are we going to give you this great content these these pay-per-views that a lot of people want to watch but we're going to give you sort of a marketing value because imagine you know if uh pay-per-views end up being exclusively on Peacock, that's going to be plastered all over Raw and SmackDown for all of their viewers and on, on all of their digital media and social media and all of their platforms. So I think there's a lot of value in terms of a marketing value that WWE could argue that they're going to provide to whoever buys their pay-per-views. So there's that too. And that also gets into, I guess, kind of uh, having, you know, certain geo restrictions on your network for you know like here in canada that we we don't get a peacock for instance of how you uh kind of broadcast that out on the wwe network as well so there's like yeah. worldwide component that a deal like that would have right I, I guess they could because i think they've done they've done blockouts in, in certain regions i think i think that's something that the technology of the network could probably handle if, if say they dealt pay-per-view rights in the u.s to peacock and peacock isn't available worldwide well We'll still make it available to the people in Canada and other countries. Um, and, and but but in the meanwhile, probably looking for, you know, well, if we can't make a, a pay-per-view rights deal that goes beyond the U.S., uh, maybe we can make a streaming deal with other streaming players that are available worldwide or in certain uh, regions. Uh, Nick Khan basically said, said something to that effect. Yes, we're looking to deal it domestically, but also globally. Uh, just a few more minutes with you, Brandon. You've been uh, great here, uh, spending so much time chatting about all of this with us. As uh, we come out of the Q&A, uh, one of the big news items was uh, one of the largest budgets that Netflix has ever put towards a documentary series is going towards a Vince McMahon bio series. And this past year, we got the Undertaker media tour. Can you anticipate a Vince McMahon media tour in anticipation of this documentary series and where, um, like serious question, uh, like obviously Netflix feels this will be a major hook for people. And I mean, if you're looking at wrestling figures that are going to draw that level of attention, you're probably starting with Vince McMahon. Yeah. I think that is a, a, a big cool show that people are going to be attracted to. And sort of things that I've, I've like sort of half jokingly said that they should do is, you know, Vince McMahon should retire from creative and just go on, you know, he should hook up with Bruce Pritchard and go on the network and they should review old pay-per-views. I, but I think there's like a real value in, in Vince telling his story and Vince hasn't told his story a lot, you know, like to his credit, I think he, he's, he's tried to stay out of the, out of the limelight in certain things. Like he won't appear on the hall of fame ceremonies and 
he appears sometimes as a talking head in their documentaries, right? But he's not he's not overbearing. I think he's, he tries to stay out of the way. And I think maybe there is even some insecurity about, you know, well, he's, he's 75 years old now. He doesn't want to be seen too much. But, um, no, I think that that's, a, that's a big deal story. And I'm, and I'm glad that that, uh, you know, uh, 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 accuracy and truthfulness notwithstanding, <laughs> I think I think that's a, uh, an exciting, you know, uh, multi-part documentary series that I'll probably watch. And uh, I hadn't even thought of that if, if there's going to be a, a Vince McMahon media tour. I don't know. I think you got to do, you know, some some outlets that you would think are Vince McMahon would be doing some promotion for this in, in advance of it all. Um, just just given the stature of it, I just think it's it's notable the fact that uh, Netflix is investing so heavily, and I think it probably tells you that you know the the Undertaker series was well received outside of just the, the wrestling bubble, and that's probably a series that you know, given when the pandemic hit, that. I always thought like that was something that I think if it had come out several months later, you probably would have had some suitors outside of the WWE network as the first window for that series. Yeah. Um, maybe I think Vince McMahon is a, is, is just a big cultural figure beyond somebody like the undertaker. I know they did the, the Andre, the giant uh, series with HBO not that long ago. Um, uh, but Vince McMahon is, uh, I think first of all, he's, he's a big name in culture, uh, relative to a lot of wrestling stars and I think his story is he's the one who's been around for all these decades. And his story is sort of like a certainly in his view is a, is a, an American entrepreneurial story of like, this guy who came out of a trailer park in, in North Carolina and he pulled himself up by his own bootstraps and he did it himself just by his, his pure hard work and determination. And uh, but there's a lot of uh, it'll be it'll be very interesting to see how certain things are handled. <laughs> there's, there's so many scandals. In, in the life and business of Vince McMahon. That, well, it's uh, like the series is going to be most <laughs> noteworthy for what's not in it versus what's in it. I think it's going to be, especially among a wrestling audience, it's going to be certainly a scrutinized documentary, but it's one that's going to have like so much yeah. attention uh, attached to it that, I mean, it, it'll really be uh, a temperature check on what the kind of uh, audience at large beyond just wrestling fans has when it comes to Vince McMahon in wherever, whenever this is released. Yeah, and until you and I are contacted to be talking heads, I, I will remain skeptical. You might get the call to be like the narrator, like when Vince is deep in thought, the stream of consciousness, yes. Brandon Thurston, I think, might be uh, called upon. Um, just in terms of the the earnings call, uh, you know, there's so many different directions they they could have gone w- with questions. Was there any like glaring subject that you were somewhat surprised was not uh, brought up? Uh, not that surprised, but there was no Andrew Yang talk. No. Nope. Um, and that's I always try to make this, this this distinction is that there's there's subjects that are on wrestling fans minds that are not necessarily on the minds of of stock analysts. Um, but I think this is one that that does have quite a bit of business relevance. If um, we're assessing the value of W as a company and I don't think W is ever going to sell in the life of Vince McMahon. I think I would be very, I would be surprised if that happened. But if I was uh, trying to assess the value or if I was trying to buy WWE. Um, one of the things I think is sort of a hidden liability is that they have this outstanding issue between the possibly, and I think they are, uh, misclassifying their wrestlers uh, as independent contractors, but treating them like employees. Um, and Andrew Yang, uh, has been public criticizing them about that more than once now. Um, the polls don't look good for Donald Trump. Um, so, so maybe Andrew Yang gets influence Come January, uh, maybe maybe he is or isn't the, the Secretary of Labor, but maybe he, he does, as he says, have their phone number, and uh, that could be something that Andrew Yang could you know could sue them about. I think he did say on on Talk is Jericho, right, that he would that's that that's what he would do. He would uh, investigate them or something. So, if, so my my point is, if I'm going to buy WWE, uh, you know, I, I see that their market cap is about three billion dollars, but and I see that they're uh, you know they're making over a hundred million dollars in net income. Uh, in, in a year, but uh, how much does it really cost to to uh, compensate their talent? You know, if I have to, uh, you know, avoid litigation uh, by converting them all to employees, and I think that's you know the answer is it's it's ten to twenty million dollars a year in uh, to to convert them from independent contractors to employees. But it's just sort of a, hot, a hidden liability. It's not something that they couldn't afford, or it's not something that's the difference between. Uh, profitability and loss, but uh, but it's a hidden a hidden liability. And 
the biggest question of all, where was Laura Martin? That's oh, I didn't even think about that. Big omission. Yeah. I mean, for all the time she would come on and congratulate them on a fantastic quarter. Here we have a record and no Laura Martin to, to hear from. I mean, one of the one of the regulars on these calls. Maybe maybe she's Team Barrios. Maybe maybe this has been a rough transition. Well, she's she's been around for the, for the uh, the interim Riddick era, but uh, Laura Martin of Needham, not around. But you know, I think Laura Martin's a, a a big deal analyst. She's probably got a lot of other companies that she's covering in addition to WWE. So maybe there was just a a, a bigger bigger uh, earnings call to pay attention to on Thursday afternoon. I don't know. Well, if they ever move these back to eleven a.m. Maybe it's to accommodate uh, Laura Martin. It would be a welcome change back. I'm not, I'm not a fan of these 5 o'clock calls, Brandon. I don't know about oh. you, but these are a r- rough time of the day. It's, it's not going to change. I think this is just normal. It's like This is when uh, most companies do it after the market closes rather than while the market is open, I guess. Um, probably, it probably just you – know, it's better for uh, causing less volatility in, in trading. Uh, yeah. Sorry, sorry to tell you. I don't expect it to change anytime soon. Well, it's just what we have to we have to put up with. Uh, as we end off here, uh, the floor is yours, Brandon. I know that you will have a, a whole extensive rundown on this, but I do let our listeners know where they can hear uh, more of your great work and as well the the Patreon information. As WrestleNomics has made their uh, big return to Patreon. Yeah, I'm an entrepreneur too, I guess. Um, yes. So I write stuff at WrestleNomics.com. Uh, I did do one article just the other day that is behind a paywall for the first time, which is an analysis of the quarter hour breakdown of viewership for NXT and AEW. I, I put it behind a paywall, not so much because uh, I wanted to monetize it and become rich, but because I did not uh, wish to hear the uh, the responses of everyone arguing and, and feeling that they were affirmed or, or uh, you know, striking down somebody else's opinion about who's a draw and who's not a draw. But, but if you are one of the intelligent and trustworthy patrons of WrestleNomics, which you can become at patreon.com slash WrestleNomics, you can read that article and get some analysis about is, are there any um, correlations between quarter hours doing better than they should or not as well as they should and the actual people who are appearing in those 15-minute segments and all the complications that are involved with that. Um, that's an article that's on WrestleNomics.com and for, for the patrons and it is on the Patreon. Um, so that's my written work, which is on WrestleNomics.com. I do a podcast that releases every Saturday as part of the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. Uh, you can find that wherever you listen to podcasts. That is free. And uh, I don't know, you can follow me at WrestleNomics. You can follow me personally uh, on Twitter at Brandon Thurston. The you know, come come for the analysis. It's it's top rate stuff from Brandon, but the Vince McMahon stream of consciousness that you have done. I I told you this. I was driving home, listening to this, and my three year old was asleep in the back. And I am not like your laugh out loud person when I'm on my own, but my God, it was a tremendous bit of audio from one Brandon Thurston. So uh, I give my highest recommendation to all of the great work uh, that you put out, Brandon. And thank you so much for joining us for one of our quarterly specials here. The the real, the real big tentpole events here at Post Wrestling when Brandon Thurston stops by. So thank you as always, Brandon. Absolutely. Thanks. Thanks for having me.